Hi, this is Robert Kiyosaki, and you're listening to Capital Hacking with Josh and Eric. This is the most important thing you can listen to today. On today's episode of Capital Hacking. First of all, the stories that are about you personally are going to be your most genuine and authentic stories because it's just something that really happened to you. I do get the, there are times where storytelling can feel contrived. And in those cases, I would tell you, well, don't tell one. Right? Remember, only 10 to 15% of the time, you should be telling stories. And if you're in one of those situations where a story really isn't called for, if you're in a job interview and you know the person interviewing you says, I, I noticed here you haven't kept a job for more than eight months at a time. <laughs> Why is that? And, and you say, well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> you clearly got something to hide, right? Welcome back to Capital Hacking. Hey, hey, hey. I don't know if you're allowed to say hey unless you're a horse. As my teacher from second grade would have said, it is Josh McCallan. You are back for your personal audio mastermind, our service. It is our pleasure to bring you this. Now, today's content has to do with storytelling. And before you change the dial, if you're one of the people that Paul mentions in the podcast who don't like the word story, I get it. I get it. But how can you deny that stories have been part of civilization since the word civilization was conceived? There is no society without a story. And, you know, in the work that our teams do and my wife and I and hundreds and hundreds of people that get to work with us and join us side by side in these visions, there's stories that are shared to set vision, to set a, a common goal and a purpose for companies and teams. So when we met this person named Paul Smith, who wrote a really great book, Sell with a Story, and then followed it up with Lead with a Story, and then most recently came out with 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell. Yep, that's right. I just read his bio without you noticing. Okay. When we first met this author, this very successful author, by learning from him, by doing worksheets with him, by learning how stories work, but more importantly, we were impressed by his purpose. Meaning, why even spend the energy to be a storytelling leader if you don't want the good of your teammates, if you don't want the good of the organization to come to fruition, to fulfill your mission? So anyway, stories are something that come natural to the the great storytellers that are perhaps something people like myself need to work on and get better at. And you might be in one of those two camps. But did you know that stories have always touched the heart of people, right? There hasn't been a child that doesn't want to sit down and read a story with their parents. There hasn't been an adult that hasn't changed their life based on the story. We're all in a dynamic story, aren't we? I mean, don't they call it history or it's a story. We are in the middle of challenges, struggles, overcoming struggles. We're seeking goals. We're facing obstacles. Anyway, it's a shared common experience of a story. 
And this little episode will share with you, you're going to get a couple takeaways. One, we're going to learn as best as we can from this pragmatic author, what his story is. You'll see what I had to do to get it out of him. Two, with the top 10 stories great leaders tell, you're going to find out what they are. So if you stick around till the break, you're going to find out what are the top 10 stories. And then you're going to learn that these stories, these frameworks of stories are something you could actually incorporate into your work, your ministry, the work you're doing to help other people and lead. So that's the 10 stories. Then we're going to go over the number one most important story. We're going to do a little deeper dive at the end, and you're going to hear the number one most important story that leaders need to tell. All right. It is an absolute pleasure to share this episode with you. Sit down and you'll find, by the way, you're also going to find out what never to say in a story. These are the great deliverables. If you listen to the whole show, you're like, you're going to be so much more educated on how to lead. I'm trying to learn myself. Have a great day. Welcome back to Capital Hacking. Your buddy Josh here, and I am with the world famous Paul Smith, as you know. It's great to see you, Paul. Thanks very much. It's so good to see you again. We met not too long ago. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Paul, you and I met because I was enamored by your stage presence. Now, there's a story behind this because there's always a story behind it, isn't there, Paul? Could you, for those who do not yet know you, would you mind sharing a little bit about who you are, Paul, where you live, and what makes you tick? Yeah, so uh, Paul Smith, I live in the Cincinnati, Ohio area. And I, you know, my first 20 years of my career was a pretty typical corporate career path. You know, I studied economics and business in school, I got a job at Procter & Gamble, worked there for 20 years in various levels of management, like I said, pretty typical corporate stuff. But along that way, I just got fascinated with this concept of storytelling. And so I started, and well, and I realized if I want to be a, a great leader, I need to get good at this skill. And, and that frustrated me because that's not something they taught me in business school. I worked for as a consultant for a couple of years at Accenture. They didn't teach me that there. They didn't teach me that when I joined Procter & Gamble. And so I started reading all the books I could find on the topic. And I still didn't know how to do it. <laughs> so <laughs> I literally started interviewing leaders who I thought were particularly good at, it. you know, starting inside the company, like up to and including the CEO and chairman of the board. And then I started interviewing people outside the company that, that I thought were good at it. And eventually along the way, I just, I realized, gosh, if I want to know this stuff that badly, maybe other people do as well. And so it stopped being my own little selfish learning journey and became an idea for a book. And so, you know, then I was doing this research, not just for me, but to write a book about it. And that became the, you know, the content of my first book, Lead with a Story. And that book just, it, it changed my career path, right? So, because it turned out a lot of other people did want to know exactly that. And I think that first book is now in its 11th or 12th printing, and it's in seven or eight languages around the world. And so I, I, I very quickly ended up leaving the company and becoming a full-time researcher, author, speaker, trainer, on the topic of storytelling at work. And so then that was 10 years ago. And so that, that, that was a radical shift in my career to an, an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, if you will, an author and speaker. And that's kind of what I do now. We were actually extremely impressed by the work you do. As a matter of fact, the book that you talk about a lot is The 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell is your most recent work. You know, I'm getting the strong overtones of a, of a gentleman like a Jim Collins, you know, at work in your heart. You know, this idea of researching for effective knowledge to effectively change your life and change the way other people do business. So we admire that about you. This show 
capital hacking tends to talk a lot about the two types of capital, you know, human and the work we can do on ourselves to develop our own value to the world and to ourselves and our family. And then the financial capital and how to construct great capital formation and all kinds of things needed for business. But both are needed, human and financial. And your storytelling skill and your focus on it is really a great combination. Like in order for business to work, you believe, and you say one of the, maybe even a hack, right? One of the core ways to lead is through a story. And you're not the first person to say that, are you, Paul? I mean, tell us. No, of course not. When you started the research, how deep does the storytelling leader go? So the, the first book written on the topic was written in, I think, 1992. And it was, it was called Management by Storying Around. You know, like there's that phrase, mm-hmm. management by walking around. This was management by storying. It's hard to say, but the word story. What a great title if you can't even say. I agree with you. It's too hard of a title. Yeah, but it's hard to say, but it's a great concept, right? It is. It uh, is. It was written by David Armstrong, who, who passed away the same year my first book came out. In fact, I dedicated that book to him for starting this revolution. So it was really only going on for about, you know, 15 or 20 years before I came along, or maybe only is not the right word. It's been going on a long time, but I'm trying to do my best to to further that that mission and make it even better. Yeah, but let's scratch at this a little bit because we're going to share with the audience the top 10 stories that we all can and should maybe work on in our life, which is, by the way, a new revolutionary idea to think about having to work on storytelling or work on some stories. Yeah. And you, you'll explain that in a moment because I'm going to ask you a few tough questions. But let's go deeper than all that. You know, when I hear stories, you know, the word parable comes up a lot. And that goes mm-hmm. all the way back to the, the ancient scriptures and things like that. But it goes way before even the scriptures were written. Parable. And is there a difference between the word story and parable in your definitions? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Melanie McCallan. Josh and I are just so grateful for the many investors who have already joined us at Accountable Equity. Accountable Equity is so much more than a capital group. It's really a community of accredited investors that want to learn and grow together. I just want to personally invite you, if you want to find out more about this type of investment and see if it's right for you and your family, please visit us at accountableequity.com. I don't think so. I mean, you, there are a lot of words that kind of mean story, parable, story, anecdote. And the, the distinction between those to me is not nearly as important as the distinction between those set of words and other things that we say at work that are not a story, like a speech or a presentation or a recommendation or an email or a memo. Those things are decidedly not stories, right? You know, even a case study is kind of a story. It's kind of pretending to be a story, but it's not because it's, well, the company did this and the company did that and the company did this. Well, you know, stories are about people, human beings. You know, so if Josh did this and Paul said that and Sally did this, okay, now that sounds more like a story. But if ABC company did this and XYZ department did that, well, that, that's probably not a story. Well, those are some of the things that we're going to tease to the audience, because if we share with them that you have dissected, like Jim Collins in Good to Great, you've dissected what great stories are, just like great companies. And you talk about the structure, the skeleton or the story structure. And you even said there's a way to learn this. And and that's kind of where your work is today, right? I mean, your work today is people like me that are eager to lead 
with the good of, for the good of the others, want to do it in a way that is the most naturally received. Mm-hmm. You know, no one wants to be a tyrant or a forceful person. They want to, they want to show a vision and attract those around them to want that vision or to be pushed away a bit. Not, not in a bad way, not because anybody wants other people to leave, but if they're not happy with the vision, then they're not going to be happy at work. So we always right. want to, it's like a push pull. We want to pull you into the vision Hopefully you adopt it. And if not, it does kind of let you realize you may not want this. So storytelling is really important to me. And, and then I'm I'm kind of trying to follow your lead, brother. I've been to two of your presentations. I got the anatomy or the structure of a story. So when you meet a person like us that's eager to learn, where do you start, Paul? When you want to teach somebody like me and the thousands of people listening today, where do you start? You know, we typically start a little bit like we just started this conversation. What is a story and what's not a story? So they know, you know, the difference. And as you might remember, we probably went through a few little exercises to, you know, oh, yeah, that's a story. And this one's not, you know, a story has a, a time, a place, a main character. That main character has got a goal or, you know, an obstacle, you know, and an obstacle getting in the way of that goal. And there are events that transpire along the way. So those are some of the criteria that you're looking for to know and to differentiate a story from things that are not a story. So that's where you got to start is to know what it is that you're talking about when you talk about storytelling. You know, then we talk about why it's important, you know, what's kind of that human psychology behind why storytelling is so effective. And, you know, third step is typically what stories you need. And that's that, you know, that, that's where we start with that list of the 10 stories great leaders tell, because, you know, there's really dozens and dozens of stories that you probably need over the course of your career. But that's a nice place to start is, you know, what are the most important 10 that I should start working on? And then you can get into how. And notice all of that, you know, happens before you talk about the structure. Ooh, how do you point. create the right emotional engagement? How do you create a surprise ending? All that how stuff is totally unhelpful, confusing, and unnecessary if you don't know what a story is, why they work, and what stories you want to tell. Those things have to come first. Yeah, and I think... Good point. You're, Chris, you're right. I started jumping into the how, where you, you build the uh, criteria, the characters and the conflict, and you lay it all out because we're all in a dynamic story right now. And so to us, you know, I was thinking, okay, well, how do I chronicle that? Because it's funny, I'm growing up, I was always a pretty good storyteller and I still think I do all right. But when I listen to guys like you and people like you on stage and you're talking, you're using stories. Now you demonstrate a failed story and a positive story. And you feel those, what do you want to call them? Like faux stories. Could you do that for our audience now? Like what's a fake story that people think is, you said case study, but could you give an example of like something that people thought was a story doesn't emotionally connect. So don't use it. Yeah. Oh, you know, when when people say things like, you know, look, I've been here for 20 years and and what I've learned is there are three things you got to do to be successful at this company. You know, you know, you got you got to come up with a, a great vision. You got to surround yourself by an effective team and you got to instill the right type of discipline in people to get the work done. If you do those three things, you're going to be effective at this company. And they say those things and that might be great advice, but they think that they've told this amazing story and they haven't even told a lousy story. They haven't <laughs> told a story. They've just <laughs> given people advice, which as the boss, as the leader, it's your job to give good advice. You have to do things like that. And there is nothing at all wrong with doing things like that. What's wrong is saying something like that and thinking that you've told this compelling story and you haven't, you've just given people good advice. And as you recall from class, I don't think you should walk around all day long telling stories. I mean, I, in fact, I think the number I, I gave you was a uh, 10 to 15%. 
10 to 15% of the time, you ought to be telling stories. But the other 85 to 90% of the time, you should not. You should be giving people advice and telling them what to do and you know, helping them solve the problems and giving direction. I mean, the things that leaders do. But that 10 to 15% that you're going to tell a story, it just recognize it's something very different than just listing off reasons, th things that you should go do and reasons to agree to my recommendation. And that's normal business speak. Stories are just very different and you need to learn different skills for them. And the reason you and I are even here today talking about this is because I believe they do touch us on a primordial level. Like we all are in this human struggle and a story is the chronicling of that struggle and the overcoming of a struggle and what lessons happen through the storytelling. You don't have to actually say the lessons. Right. Now, there's a couple never evers that you teach that I'd love for you to teach the audience. What are some, if you're getting on stage and you're like, I'm going to begin with a story because I heard yeah. this great podcast, right? What's yeah. the first thing you should never do? <laughs> no, yeah. I, I, I think I'm asking the question correctly. You are, and and you just did it, right? And I know, and I know why you did it, right? Because you don't start by telling people you're going to tell them a story. Wait, wait, wait! Time out. That's revolutionary. So I get up and I'm like, "We're about to tell you all about the science of our business today." Let me begin by telling you a story. You're saying right. that's not a good idea. Everything up to the part where you said, "Let me start by telling you a story." <laughs> now, all the rest of that is fine, but when you, but there are many adults. I mean, if your audience is a bunch of kindergartners, that might be great. Come gather around, boys and girls. It's story time, you know. But when you're dealing with grownups a significant percentage of adults have a negative visceral reaction to hearing the words, let me tell you a story. Because, you know, when I was a kid, Josh, growing up in the South, you know, my mom would say, Paul Smith, if you don't quit telling stories, I'm going to switch your behind. You know, I mean, story meant lying, right? You know, to some people, when you say, let me tell you a story, what they think is uh, they're, they're immediately their eyes roll on the back of their head and they're like, oh, geez, Paul, do we have time for this? Come on, why don't you, can you just tell us what you need us to know? In fact, the analogy I'd give you is, uh, it's, it, telling an adult that you want to tell them a story is like telling a five-year-old kid, it's time to stop playing with your friends outside and come inside and take a bath, right? In both cases, they don't want to do it. But in both cases, once they get in it, they love it and they don't want to get out, right? So you don't tell a kid, it's time to take a bath. You just go put them in the bath, right? Uh -huh. And you don't tell an adult, I'm going to tell you a story because they think you're just going to waste their time with the boring, irrelevant story. Just tell them the story. No, don't announce that you're going to tell the story. That's the first thing for, for sure not to do. So did that, maybe I didn't cover that with your group, but is that? That's it. That's it. Never say tell them the story. Are there, are there any other never evers that people commonly fall into the trap? Yeah, just starting out a story by giving away the ending or the lesson that they're going to learn is typically ruins the story, right? I mean, stories, you know, when you're making a recommendation, you lead with the end in mind. I want to recommend that we buy our number one competitor. I'm recommending an acquisition. Here are my reasons why. But when you, in that presentation, when you get to the point that you want to tell a story about something that happened at that, you know, competitor that gave you the idea that you should buy them, you don't start out by telling the end of the story or the lesson that you're supposed to learn from it. Because then your audience has less reason to listen to your story. Well, I've already learned the lesson because you told me, so I don't need to hear it now. And if you tell somebody the end of a story, well, you kind of ruin, you ruin the surprise. It's just not as fun of a story to listen to then. But those are two other big mistakes that people yeah. make, leading off with the, the lesson and the end of the story. Yeah, Paul, it's been good getting to know these frameworks with you for a moment. But we have to make Paul Smith as personal as possible, just like your stories do from stage. By the way, there's that one crazy good story where you 
by the way, there's a lot of cool things you do in your presentations, but we'll get to that some other time. Tell me what was frustrating at Procter and Gamble and at Accenture that you found so frustrating you had to leave. See, there's a story in the life of Paul Smith where here he is, Procter and Gamble, one of the best retail brands in the world. Accenture, one of the top consulting groups in the world. So you're in best of breed company, best of breed company. You've learned a lot and you jump ship to write storybooks. That's, you know, that's like the the rude way of saying it. You jump ship to write storybooks, which yeah. is, there's got to be crazy. something there, yeah. Paul. Yeah. yeah. Well, so first of all, those are great companies and I enjoy them both very much. And I would highly recommend them. There's nothing wrong with those companies. What I realized was that in the, you know, say 20 years, I was doing those kind of things is, and this is my philosophy. You can tell me if, if you agree with this. I think most people, there's about 10% of their job that they absolutely love. They just can't wait to get up in the morning and go do it. It's just why they chose that profession in the first place. And there's about 10% of their job that they just hate. <laughs> you know, I don't know, it's filling out the expense report or office politics or something. But that big bucket in the middle, the 80% in the middle, you know, it's, it's pretty good. You know, I mean, I wouldn't do it if you didn't pay me, but you know, it's good work. I like it. It's good, solid work that I enjoy. And I would describe my work at those companies that way. 10%, 80%, 10%. And I thought after a while, wouldn't it be great if I could find a way just to do that 10% at the top that I love and have that be, that's my only job is that 10%. And so I thought, well, what is that? What is that 10% for me? And I realized that it was the few days a year that I got to either give a speech at the annual company meeting or teach a new hire training class or teach a class for newly promoted general managers. So it was basically when I was teaching. I realized that's what I like to do the most at this company is to teach other people how to be successful. But out of the 120,000 people that work there, not a single person had that job. It was just, that just wasn't a job. And I realized the only people that get to do that that I'm aware of are people who've written some best-selling book and then they travel around the world teaching people the content of that book. So I said, well, I guess if I want to do that kind of a job for a living, I got to write a book and a really good one. <laughs> so yeah, that that was born out of that desire to just do for a living what I really love to do. And I had to create the job because it didn't exist. Okay. So what year was that? That's a tough thing to do, by the way. That was 2012. That was 10 years ago. So I've been doing this for 10 years. And in 2012, this is really cool. I imagine all of us are leaning into it. So in 2012, they call that the Jerry Maguire moment, right? Like you're, oh, about yeah. to, you're about to do something really hard, but it's going to be rewarding. I love how you threw out there. I guess if I want to be a store, if I want to be a teacher, I have to write a best-selling book yeah. and then <laughs> be invited to speak. Okay, bro. Yeah. Not many people ever write a best-selling book. So that's a big jump from like, oh, I guess I want to do this. Come on. There's got to be like, what's that journey to writing a best-selling book? Well, first of all, I guess the idea was in 2010. That book didn't come out till 2012. But well, the way I did it was I realized that most books that get published are not that successful and would not you know, support a full-time career doing that. And so instead of having this story, I could tell you about how, oh yeah, I woke up that morning and walked into my boss's office and I quit. And then I went and started writing this book. Well, you know, I'm not nuts, right? So <laughs> I'm more risk averse than that. So I started working on the book nights and weekends for a couple of years until I had something that was good and found a publisher and it came out. And even then I didn't quit. I did all that while I still had my full-time job. And then even then I waited for like six months to see how it would do in the marketplace. And it really quickly went into second and third publishing. And I started getting a lot of phone calls to come do exactly the kind of thing that I did with your DLP group. And after about six months of that, I'd spent all my vacation time going and doing speaking engagements. 
And that was like the success criteria. Okay, that tells me that there's a full-time career potential with this. And that's when I quit. So I, I did it in a more pragmatic way. But yeah, I wanted a, a full-time job, not just some hobby on the side. Yeah, Paul, we're going to take a quick break because my wife, Melanie, always says hello to the audience because we have this fun thing she does in, with me and the community. Good. So here, when we come back, though, this is the cliffhanger for all of us. There are 10, as we said, the 10 stories great leaders tell. Let's make sure we hear what those are. And then we're going to do another surprise question after that. So we'll be right back. Hi, this is Melanie McCallan. Josh and I are just so grateful for the many investors who already joined us at Accountable Equity. Accountable Equity is so much more than a capital group. It's really a community of accredited investors that want to learn and grow together. I just want to personally invite you, if you want to find out more about this type of investment and see if it's right for you and your family, please visit us at accountableequity.com. We are back and Paul... I have a deep-seated question that I'm about to ask you, but before I ask the tough mm. one, would you mind sharing the 10 stories that great leaders tell so that we can pull our pen out and track on this and see how it correlates to our own lives and experience? Yeah, certainly. Now, there, of course, there are dozens and hundreds probably of stories you need as a leader over the course of your career, but I wrote that book because I got asked a lot, okay, that's too many. Can you give me the top 10? <laughs> I need a place to start. So I, I spent a lot of time thinking about it and researching. And here's the, here's the list I came up with. And the first four go together because they're about setting the direction for the organization, which is the leader's job, right? So where we came from. So that's a founding story. Why we can't stay there. So that's a case for change story. Where we're going, which is a vision story. And how we're going to get there, which I call a strategy story. Because a strategy is about how you're going to get from where you are now where you want to be. All right, so all that's about setting direction. But the next four go together as well, but they're more about who we are as an organization. So that's what we believe, which is a kind of a corporate values story, who we serve, which is a customer story, a story about the customer so that everybody you work with can have a visceral human understanding of who the ultimate boss is. The next one is what we do for our customers. So that's a classical sales story, a story about what you do that's so awesome, people should pay you a lot of money to do it, right? And then eight is how we're different from our competitors. Now, I call that a marketing story just because it's typically the marketing department's job to differentiate you versus your competitors. But you're explaining, you know, in story format, how you're different from your competitors, right? So those kind of go together. The last two, though, are more personal to you, the leader, all right? So that's why I lead the way I do. And that's a personal leadership philosophy story. The number 10 is why you should want to work here. I mean, not, not you, but you, whoever you're talking to, right? So that's a recruiting story. And, and those two are important because every leader's job is attracting talented people into the organization and having them stay and follow your leadership. Now, now notice, by the way, some of those sounded like functionally specific stories, and they are, but every leader needs to be able to tell all 10. So if you work in the marketing department, you better have lots of marketing stories. But if you don't work in marketing, you still need one, right? If you were in sales, you got to have lots of sales stories. But if you don't, you still need to be able to tell one sales story. Or the truth is, you really don't know what your company does, you know, for, for your customers. So th th this is a group of stories that I think every leader, regardless of their functional discipline, needs to be able to tell. 
you take our breath away because I actually did notate them and I made brackets around them. And I'm going to run through them really quick because for all of us who are students here at Capital Hacking. So I'm going to shorten them to a founding story, a case for change story, a vision story, and a strategy story are all the first core because they set the direction for the company. The second four are corporate values-based customer, who the customer is, what do we do for customers, which is sales, and how we're different. That's marketing. Those are the four that define, you know, instead of direction, what did you say that category was called? It's how we do what we do. who we are as an organization. And, you know, on a visceral level, meaning gut level, I get all of these reasons why you need to have it. I feel judged a little bit by your stories because (laughs) I don't have this many cool ideas in my head. They might come out naturally, but I don't, I can't like pull these babies out of my back pocket. And then the last ones are our, our personal philosophies of leadership and why persons want to work here. You know, at the end of the day with us, we always talk about the the virtues we're developing as a company. Virtues means we'll never get there, but we're trying. And humility, because there's dignity in each of us. It feels like if we did these stories right, they really respect the dignity of each person. There's going to be a naysayer listening to this podcast, though, Paul, who says, man, Paul, you're just coming up with like a bag of tricks. You know, you're just trying to trick people into doing what you want them to do. And this is contrived. Right. Because sometimes you, when you when you and I hear a story, I tend to think that it's like I'm the first person they ever shared that with or whatever. Tell me why this is an authentic way to lead. So, first of all, the stories that are about you personally are going to be your most genuine and authentic stories because it's just something that really happened to you. I do get the there are times where storytelling can feel contrived. And in those cases, I would tell you, well, don't tell one. Right. Remember, only 10 to 15 percent of the time you should be telling stories. And if you're in one of those situations where a story really isn't called for, if you're in a job interview and, you know, the person interviewing you says, I, I noticed here you haven't kept a job for more than eight months at a time. <laughs> Why is that? And, and you say, well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> you clearly got something to hide. Right. So there not every time is appropriate to tell a story. And if you can't tell a genuine and authentic story, when it's called for, then don't tell a story at all. And and that way you'll only be left with the genuine, authentic stories. No, that's, that's fair. I want to pay devil's advocate two more times with you because I think mm-hmm. you, you can handle it. You were a podcaster and all that good stuff. I still got to hear a little bit about how you succeeded so well with your book. But before we get to that, there's got to be a new 10-80-20, the new Pareto, Pareto rules. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you went from corporate America 12 years ago to build a very successful thought leadership style business where you write books, you speak, you're a thought leader in the world of stories, you're an educator. What are the new 10 that is wonderful, 10 that's tough, and 80 that's okay? In my new job, what's the 10% that I love the most? Yeah, what do you love the most? Ah, see, well, the truth is I succeeded in doing what I wanted to do. Now, the, the surprising part is this. To be a successful speaker, you almost always have to have a good book. Not everybody does. There are very successful speakers who don't have books, but it's an easier path. So notice I didn't say I want to quit my job to go become an author. Becoming an author was the necessary evil I had to go through to get to be the guy speaking Mm -hmm. on stage. Mm -hmm. So when I left, I thought, well, I'm going to have to do all this research and writing, which, you know, is not going to be that great, but it's going to allow me to spend a lot of time on stage and teaching people. And I love that. It turned out, I found out that I actually love writing. I had no idea. But, you know, halfway through that first book, I was like, 
I really enjoyed this process of researching and writing a book. I, you know, I'm not a musician. I'm not an artist. I mean, so writing a book was a creative outlet that I had never had in my life. And, and so I, I, I love it. So I, I think I ended up with, you know, two top 10% <laughs> that yeah. happened to take all, all hundred, but I didn't have to, I, you're right. That could have been my next 80%, but it turned out that I love that too. So it worked out great. Yeah. So in a way your life today is, are you still writing books? I'm not interestingly enough. So I've written five in the last 10 years, 12 years. And what I've decided to do now, it turns out, I think 10 years is about as long as I can do something without having a major change. It seems like, right. You know, so I spent my first 10 years at Procter and Gamble working in finance and accounting. I spent my next 10 years working in consumer research. Then I quit. I spent my next 10 years as an author and speaker. So what I'm spending my time on now, this is going to freak you out. A year ago, I enrolled in almost full-time at the local university here in a degree program in astrophysics, of all things. Whoa! <laughs> so I, I am a student, along with a bunch of other 18 and 19-year-olds, and you know, I just finished my freshman physics classes. No and way. Chemistry, and no I'm way. taking astrobiology and geology and modern physics, and you know, I'll do it as long as I can handle it, but you know, it may get over my head really quickly, but... Those are just subjects that I've always been fascinated by, but never really studied academically. And so that's my that's my new challenge that I'm spending my time on. I am so impressed and I am surprised, but I'm very impressed. Yeah. Will you actually have a career based on that or will it be a passion project? Well, the good news is it only has to be a passion project to be successful for me. Like these good. are just things I just I just want to know these things. What I don't want to do with it is go become a full-time astrophysicist, you know, in a observatory somewhere or be a professor. You know, that's not my goal. I'm not looking for more work. I got plenty of work. What I do imagine myself doing with that, though, is instead of writing books on business storytelling, is writing books on science for a a lay audience, but tell the stories of science and not just explain the math. So I could see myself writing books on science, given what I'm about to learn. And does it have anything to do with a goal to meet Elon Musk? <laughs> no, although I drive one of his cars. I knew it. Yeah, if I, I met it. him, that'd be pretty cool. All right. Okay, so back to the fact that you wrote a book to do your ultimate goal. No one has ever designed a more pragmatic and achieved it method <laughs> to leave corporate America. Most people, that's like the dream, right? Where you write a book, therefore you don't have to leave your job. You get speaking gigs, you use up your vacation pay, then you leave your job. That's exactly, you should write a book about the world's perfect way to leave your job, but but it doesn't usually work that way. So Mm. what was it? How did you get the lift off needed? This is us just learning business practices from you because you clearly have succeeded in a lot of things. How did you get that first book to lift off enough to get traction? And how did you get your publisher? Yeah, so, well, in the opposite order. So- I think the book did well, first of all, because I had a good publisher and the way you get that. So a lot of people self-publish books these days, which is totally fine. And there are a few of them that will be wildly successful, but 99% of them will sell less than a hundred copies. Like you basically, you'll sell them to your, your family and your friends and that's it. And if you want to support a speaking business, which I did, you need to sell lots and lots of books. So I knew that self-publishing was not the ideal way to do this career path. It makes a lot of sense for People that just, you know, I want to be an author. I just always dreamed that I'd be an author. And I can tell people at cocktail parties that I'm a published author. And I still got my full-time day job. That's a great route. So, but I wanted to get an old school, you know, New York City publishing company. You know, today today it's HarperCollins. At the time it was Amacom Books. 
But uh, yeah, so I started by getting an agent, a literary mm. agent to help me get my book proposal into the hands of, mm. you know, some serious publishing houses who would be able to get it full distribution in all the Barnes and Nobles and, you know, all over the world. And, but, you know, and they, they shop it to other publishers in other countries to get it translated into other languages. And those are all kind of things that you as a self-published author just really can't do very mm. well or very easily. So it started by, you know, get an agent, get a good publisher. And, and that's the, the first couple of steps. Well, that's, again, another great, great piece of advice. Now, here we are coming to the end of the podcast. And we promised in the intro earlier on that we would share one type of the top 10 stories that great leaders mm-hmm. tell. So if you could, my favorite, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. would be the founding story and the mm-hmm. story why the founder did it. Would you mind dissecting that so we get a sense of what it's like to learn from you? And then yeah. after you dissect it, we'll ask you one final question. Yeah, well, I'll just, let me give you an example. It's the best way to understand Please this. Do. This one's about a guy named Gary Erickson, who back in the 1980s was running a, a bakery, you know, making pastries or whatever. And he's also was an avid bicyclist. And so he's out one weekend on one of these like 100 ridiculous 175 mile you know, bike rides around the San Francisco Bay Area with a buddy of his. And of course, you know, with all all that riding, you burn a lot of fuel, right? So you got oh, to yeah. eat along the way. So he's got these, you know, power bars that he's eating. And in fact, he eats like six of them over the course of a day because he's like doing so much cycling. And he's at the ends up at the top of this, I think it's Mount Hamilton or something. He's got 50 miles left to go in this ride. And he's eaten five out of these six power bars already. And he <laughs> looks at the sixth one in his hand. And he says to his buddy, there is no way I'm going to eat this thing. Right. I mean, this, you know, these things, they sit in your stomach like a rock, you know, and they taste awful. And, you know, you know, it's just, it's sticky and gooey and he's just sick of eating these things. That's all he's had to eat all day. And he said, I just can't do it. So he, he wrote, he wrote home on an empty stomach, but on the way down the mountain, he tells his buddy, he's like, there is no reason why these energy bars, and this is the only one on the market. This is back in the 1980s. There was only one brand on the market. That was Power Bar, I think. And he said, there's no reason why these things have to be so awful. And he said, I run a bakery. Like, and see, that was when the epiphany happened. He said, you know what? I'm going to make a better energy bar than this. I'm going to do it. Like, nobody's made one. I'm going to do it. And he spent the next six months, like, in his bakery with his mom, actually, like, coming up with different formulas and trying different things. And most of them didn't work out. And after six months, he'd finally hit on the formula to make a much better tasting, healthy, energy bar. And he decided because his father is the one who gave him his love of cycling. And he'd already named his bakery after his mom, I think. He decided to name the energy bar after his dad. His dad's name was Clifford. And that's how the Cliff Bar was born. Mm. And so that kind of a story about why he came up with the product and started the company he started helps everybody who works on the Cliff Bar at that business understand why, why are we making this thing? And it's for guys like that out on the road cycling who have to eat a half a dozen of these things and they don't want it to taste like crap. And they they want it to be healthy and not sticky and rot their teeth out. And, you know, so you want the people you work with to have to share the passion for why you started the company. You want them to understand and feel that because nobody ever, ever quit their job, risked everything to start a business for a boring reason. Right. There's always an interesting story behind it. And everybody needs to hear that story so they can share the founder's passion. Yeah, that is a great story. What is his name again? The guy who creates Cliff Bar? Gary Erickson, I, I uh, think. Okay. That's it. And if you know, 
you notice, my friend, I was doing my best as your podcast host tonight to get Paul Smith to share his founding story. And I think we got we got it. I think it. you got most of it. Yeah. You're a pragmatist, though, so you did it in a very practical way, which was very cool. How can we reach out to you if we want to learn more about all the great work you've done, Paul? Yeah, thanks. Probably the easiest way is my website, which is leadwithastory.com. Well, Paul, lead with a story it is. Thank you so much for visiting the Capital Hacking Group. You'll have a ton of people following up from here, I'm sure. We appreciate you, buddy. Yes, thanks for having me on. Wow. Wow, you made it, everybody. Thank you so much. Eric and I have always said that the people who join us at the end get the pearl and the prize. Awesome. Folks, don't forget to like and share and love what we're doing on social media. If you want to hit up Josh, you want to hit me up, those are the best places to find us. We are always camped out and ready to talk and <laughs> put we the fire We stand on. by on social media. By, by the way, I know we're on Capital Hacking at Instagram, Capital Hacking on Facebook, and Capital Hacking on my personal favorite, LinkedIn. Yes, because you can always find major players on LinkedIn. I don't know your favorite. These are some power players on LinkedIn. Always. Gary V, he's yeah. my boy. <laughs> but Gary V also talks about the power of Instagram. So if you also want to find us there, we're doing a lot of really cool, sexy things on Instagram. So always <laughs> you can reach out and DM us on Instagram if you have any questions or you want our time. We are always camped out and living there as well. We will get right back to you. And just like we always say, you are now part of the team. This is a team that's here to add value to your life. And thank you for adding so much value to our life. Remember to share this podcast helps us grow it bigger and bigger each week. And we appreciate you posting a review on iTunes. You cannot believe how powerful that is. Absolutely. Like and share this with anyone and everyone that you think it will add value to. And we appreciate all of that love and support. And do not forget, with great power comes great, great responsibility. responsibility. Woo, woo, woo.